Greetings and welcome to another episode of Unpacking Islamophobia, a podcast sponsored by the Bridge Initiative here at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar. I am an international human rights lawyer, founder of TheMuslimGuy.com, senior fellow at the Bridge Initiative, and author of the book Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. Uh, my guest today is Spencer Ackerman, uh, who is a Pulitzer Prize and National Magazine award-winning reporter and author of the book Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Mr. Ackerman is a longtime investigative journalist who serves as a contributing editor at The Daily Beast and from 2017 to tw until 2021 served as senior national security correspondent for The Daily Beast. He has also been a former U.S. national security editor for The Guardian newspaper and part of the Pulitzer Prize winning team reporting on Edward Snowden's surveillance revelations. Spencer Ackerman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Unpacking Islamophobia podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Arslan. And I know uh, The Nation magazine uh, would be uh, hot on my heels unless I mentioned I'm also a columnist for them. I'm glad that you did. And Mr. Ackman, with that, we're going to jump right in and, and talk about the global war on terror, which is sometimes referred to as the forever wars, and which has impacted global communities around the world, especially Muslim, Arab, and South Asian minorities across the West. And so my first question to you, after reading your book, uh, Reign of Terror, uh, is, is on surveillance programs. Uh, you know, many uh, Americans, many people across the West, uh, no infamous, infamous laws like the USA Patriot Act, the United in Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct the Terrorism Act, which was packed in October 2001. But your book, Reign of Terror, also discusses many other post-9-11 surveillance programs like StellarWind, which involved data mining of a large database of the communications of American citizens, including email communications, telephone conversations, financial transactions, and internet activity. And so as my first question to you, Spencer, I'd like to ask if you could tell uh, our audience a little bit more about these post 9-11 surveillance programs and their impact, particularly on minority communities, including the Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities. Sure. And thanks very much, Arsalan. Um, one of the themes that I want to kind of get into throughout um, our conversation is that uh, we saw through the war on terror that Islamophobia impacts everyone, whether you are Muslim or not. Uh, the institutions created um, during the war on terror, the operational authorities granted during the war on terror might have started with Muslim targets, but they don't end there. And most of them continue uh, today with a great amount of what you know people called during the wars in Afghanistan um, and Iraq uh, mission creep. And I wanted to make that point because surveillance is really one of the ways in which um, that, you know, rather directly instantiates itself. So, for instance, there are multiple layers of surveillance efforts from uh, bulk surveillance to very targeted surveillance, um, some of which affect the Muslim community, some of which affect everyone. Uh, they scale up and down um the federal state and uh local levels to the international levels but as well there aren't during the war on terror equal impacts on each communities and the muslim communities in the united states feel those the strongest so to speak to um one of the first ones you referenced 
um, Stellar Wind, which is a national security agency program, taken entirely in secret um, and with exceptionally dubious, I would argue, outright illegal and unconstitutional efforts rather consciously by the National Security Agency in which they wrapped a return to um, legally unfettered surveillance that existed before the 1970s under the rubric of emergency powers necessary to confront 9-11. And what that does is collect in bulk without any specified um, connection to, uh, you know, even suspicions of, of a crime in progress or connections to a foreign power um, in the language of um, intelligence law, which is not the language of criminal law, intercepts everyone in the United States's phone records, um, records of their email communications and their web browsing histories, um, when particularly concerning international communications, where on one end you have an American and on the other end you, you, you have a foreigner. This is collected not specifically, as I mentioned, but in bulk. Um, orders that we would eventually see um, through Edward Snowden surveillance revelations, which I worked on while I was at The Guardian, make extremely clear that what um, judges on a secret court known as the FISA court approve are bulk procedures for collection, not specifications um, of particular targets with criminal predicates for why you would need them surveilled. Um, and so that creates um, in that creates a paradigm that the government has the right and the prerogative under national security justifications um, to abrogate constitutional protections of privacy. Um, and also this one, I think, is really underappreciated of association, which is a right um, granted under the First Amendment. The reason why all of this bulk surveillance is happening is because of that question of association. Um, the national security authorities, um, from, from their perspective, are trying to determine connections between people in the United States and people overseas who fit a pattern of what they would call terrorist behavior. Oftentimes, this is very little more than identitarian association, um, which makes um, its focus on Muslims, especially in the United States, often abroad, really constitutionally acute. Um, this is a system that, on one hand, um, wraps up everyone's communications, but on the other hand, is when it um, gets to the second stage of surveillance, which is analysis, sifting through all of the information in these databases, they're not looking at everyone's communications. They're focusing in particular on the communications of Muslims, to put it um, really bluntly. Um, in 2005, um, Stellar, an aspect of Stellar Wind concerning um, email data interception becomes public and becomes an enormous controversy um, between uh, the Bush administration and Congress, Democrats and Republicans, although it doesn't cleanly break down along partisan lines. Nevertheless, the result of this was to pass a law in 2008 called the FISA Amendments Act. FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that essentially carves out enormous protection 
carves out rather enormous space from the meager protections that FISA um, placed on um, uh, Americans' privacy um, in order to encapsulate um, essentially a, a modified version of, of Stellarwind. Um, the most famous of this is called PRISM, uh, and Edward Snowden's surveillance revelations um, taught us a lot about um, that program. That was a kind of turn in the surveillance ratchet. Um, it's important to situate surveillance within an economic context, by which I mean, um, at the time of 9-11 and throughout the early development of the war on terror, um, we were seeing a transformational aspect of um, the American economy, the global economy, um, toward ever larger amounts of data, which um, the tech giants um, very rapidly commodified. Um, Google, Yahoo, um, Amazon, I'm thinking, you know, primarily as, as first movers of what the um, Harvard Emerita um, economics professor Shoshana Zuboff will later call surveillance capitalism. Basically, capitalism takes upon um, a big data aspect um, that just previous um, technologies could not um, really create. Um, the NSA and its adjunct agencies, particularly in the FBI, very quick, and the CIA as well, very quickly understand the security implications and importantly bureaucratic opportunities um, for transformative surveillance created by the fact that as we go about our normal, for lack of a better term, economic activity, we're leaving an overwhelming amount of data as a footprint that in aggregate can tell us quite a lot about what we do as a society and specifically when you know collecting broad patterns of data on an individual over time tells us a tremendous amount about who they are who they associate with what they believe what you know their basic patterns of life are um, what their financial circumstances are invaluable things for an intelligence agency prism comes along at kind of the next term of the ratchet. This is uh, necessity. This is um, the creation of the uh, Foreign um, Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendment uh, Act in 2008. Um, we know that hassle of programs, including PRISM, but not limited to it, um, by a legal terminology called Section 702. We'll come back to Section 702 in a second. But the point is that yeah. at this moment in uh, economic and security history, we've kind of entered the, the social media age. Um, you know, Facebook is, is a data giant at this point, and what PRISM does uh, is now, instead of harvesting data from uh, telecommunications companies, like previous forms of Stellarwind and uh, prior surveillance efforts before 9-11 at the NSA, pulls off. Now it's symbiotic with the major social media and tech giants. And that's an important um, way of understanding what the current post 9-11 surveillance apparatus is and why it's so durable. It doesn't create its own thing. It piggybacks upon a thing that this moment in capitalism has produced. 
that I think is one of the reasons why it's so in, why it's so enduring, why it's so persistent, why I think a lot of people who are normally very privacy minded kind of accept it as the weather um, is accepted. That, that this is just sort of the atmosphere in which we live, and a certain amount of surveillance um, is baked into the equation. Now. There's also different forms of surveillance that are, while not necessarily specifically targeted against people, um, are less scaled than NSA surveillance. You mentioned the Patriot Act. Um, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI use a lot of the data collected both from the NSA um, without criminal predicate, which is legally and constitutionally um, dubious, and also the Patriot Act, which was at least passed by, um, unfortunately so, um, a lopsided congressional vote in October 2001 that you mentioned. The Department of Homeland Security comes into creation um, shortly thereafter um, by an act of Congress in 2002 and stands up in March of 2003. Both of these organizations create enormous watch lists. Uh, the FBI maintains lists of thousands of people, overwhelmingly Muslim, um, that uh, does things like ensure that many of them can't get on aircraft um, or their air travel is uh, continually tracked um, so their, their movements are monitored. If you have a boarding pass and you've ever seen four S's printed on it, that yes, that means that you are um, on one of these watch lists. You probably haven't had anything to do with any criminal enterprise or act of violence or banned association, nevertheless, um, these watch lists persist. Um, the Department of Homeland Security um, during the Bush administration maintained a program called NSEERS, which was essentially a Muslim registry of foreign Muslims who were coming into the country. The Obama administration did something um, rather characteristic of its approach of the war on terror. It shut NSEERS down, but didn't purge its databases. A lot of people were very fearful that when um, Donald Trump was running for president and then got elected, talking about creating a Muslim registry, NSEERS was there. NSEERS very easily can be turned back on and a registry of what at the time was um, 80,000 names could, could basically be, be switched back on. The FBI also does something um, that no other communities during um, the, the past 20 years um, had to face uh, under something called Project Pinpoint, um, which was an effort by the FBI to map Muslim communities in the United States, again, without criminal predicate. Um, what it does under Project Pinpoint is it creates neighborhood maps. It's looking at where Muslim community spaces are, uh, Muslim-owned businesses are, what they look like in these communities. It's essentially a non-criminal study of how the American Muslim community lives. And in 2011, I began reporting um, a series for Wired Magazine, where I worked at the time, on how the FBI was teaching its low-level counterterrorism um, special agents that uh, the enemy the United States faced uh, wasn't al-Qaeda, but it was average Muslims. And so you, you really see how um, the, the kind of ugly subtext and civilizational subtext of the war on terror 
when transferred to law enforcement and intelligence agencies and institutionalized, a lot of that um, uh, ugly subtext becomes explicit text and becomes um, inextricable from the instructions that uh, a member of law enforcement or intelligence um, is supposed to follow. To give, um, I'm afraid there's no way of uh, describing this next part, which happens in the National Security Agency along these same lines without um, uttering a slur. But, um, to, and I apologize to, to you and to your, 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 your listeners and your viewers, but um, the NSA, as it became accustomed to uh, both indiscriminate surveillance and specific Muslim surveillance, including of major civil rights activists and uh, protesters and, and, and uh, professors, and so on, they started to use, when they would give instructional materials uh, to one another, placeholders that would say things like, you're spying on, you know, Muhammad Raghead at yahoo.com. Um, so we would see uh, Islamophobia, um, both structural and vulgar, inside not just, you know, broader media discourses, broader political discourses, but inside the security agencies that are you know, doing the thing um, itself. Um, police organizations, police departments around around the country um, become recipients, particularly as war markets um, start to close when um, troop withdrawals happen, of enormous amounts of surveillance technology that was previously national, what the military would call national assets, um, things that uh, the military would use um, in war zones, those become um, available cheaply um, to police departments around the country and to border security agencies um, under the rubric of the Department of Homeland Security. So wartime tools become normalized surveillance tools um, and their focus shifts because police who acquire this don't have to exclusively use it for counterterrorism purposes and anyone who actually looks at the data will very quickly see there isn't a whole lot of counterterrorism utility that, you know, police, that there isn't a whole lot of counterterrorism operations that police in suburban New Hampshire will ultimately engage in, but they can get, you know, armored vehicles nevertheless. Um, in New York City, where I live, where I'm a native, the NYPD becomes a counterterrorism agency. The NYPD um, has official, both former and even current officials from the CIA seconded. It develops ties. It probably had previously, but certainly accelerates ties with counterterrorism forces in Israel that teach it the oppressive techniques that Israel uses against Palestinians um, for application against American uh, Muslim communities um, in the city. Um, Early after 9-11, um, a community very close to where I live um, in a neighborhood called Little Pakistan in Brooklyn experiences what can really only be called um, widespread uh, police repression. Um, it may be a little bit too hot to use this language, but I think we can really call it state terror. Um, an enormous community uh, I should say, an enormously Desi community um, that lives in that neighborhood starts getting cards slipped under um, the doors of its of its um, homes and its businesses 
that come from the FBI, the NYPD, uh, the precursor um, to ICE, uh, which was then within the Justice Department called um, INS, Immigration um, and Naturalization Services, that would just say, we need to talk. We need, they were hunting uh, potential connections between the you know immigrant Pakistani community in Brooklyn and 9-11. Not a single member of the 9-11 hijackers were Pakistani. Um, overwhelmingly, uh, the community of Little Pakistan was one that as New Yorkers experienced the trauma of 9-11. And now, extremely soon afterward, uh, were placed under persistent surveillance by police and immigration services, leading very often to roundups and arrests, um, very often uh, to uh, difficulties at airports and borders. Um, and uh, the numbers are, are probably not ever going to be official, um, but an estimated 15,000 um, people who lived in, in Little Pakistan eventually um, immigrate to Canada um, and form part of uh, Toronto's Muslim community. So these are people who are fleeing um, oppression, not from, as you know, the American imagination often likes to posit, faraway lands and tyrannies, but from the United States of America. That is a kind of overview of, of, of what happens. I would also make one final point. Surveillance itself is generative of itself. Um, one of the most powerful tools um, that both police and prosecutors use um, to generate informants is by putting people under surveillance, coming up uh, with things that are potentially um, criminal offenses that they may have um, been you know, suspected of or, or may have um, committed in saying these charges can go away if you become an informant for us. And that, that becomes eventually an estimated um, by 2010 network of, of over 10,000 people um, that the, that the um, FBI uses to infiltrate mosques and uh, Muslim community centers, businesses, and so forth, um, not just in New York City, but around the country. And that's a picture of what surveillance under um, the war on terror looks like, um, its inextricability um, with Islamophobia. And I said we would come back to Section 702 in a second. I said so because Section 702, which is the wellspring of um, a tremendous amount of NSA surveillance, is expiring, uh, post 9-11 NSA surveillance, um, is expiring at the end of the year. And um, the Biden administration, the FBI, the NSA, um, the uh, Director of National Intelligence, um, one of their major legislative priorities now thrown into chaos because of all of the Michigas around um, who the House Speaker is, is the renewal for another five years or so of Section 702. Um, and when you hear their justifications for it, it no longer has anything to do uh, with Muslims or with the war on terror. It has to do uh, with maintaining um, a qualitative intelligence edge on China, on Russia, um, on ensuring um, cybersecurity, uh, both US government cybersecurity and business cybersecurity. And that's the, what I mean when I say that um, Islamophobia during the war on terror affects everyone. 
it transforms itself through normalization, finds new rationales for its own existence, and entrenches itself. You know, um, Spencer, I want to ask you a follow-up now and, and talk a little bit more about uh, torture campaigns, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib. In the 20 years since 9-11, thousands of Muslim and Arab men have been subject to torture and inhumane treatment in places like Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay. Even Republican moderate candidate, uh, presidential, past presidential candidate Mitt Romney said that he would promise a double Guantanamo at one point. Um, Barack Obama failed to close Guantanamo Bay, even though it was one of his first uh, campaign promises. And so, in your opinion, what do you see as the legacy of these torture campaigns and lawless enclaves like Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay, and the way America is perceived to the rest of the world today? I think um, something that uh, Americans have not really, Americans in foreign policy circles and security circles, um, have not really come to terms with, but is very, very clear um, when you speak with affected communities overseas, is that the war on terror really is an end to the idea of the United States as a human rights champion. The United States is never going to give up um, that image. It is central to itself um, as a rationale uh, for U.S. hegemony and um, continued U.S. primacy now um, in its what it calls great power competition with China and Russia, but becoming an institutionalized torture state really means you can't maintain uh, that, that posture. And it, it is no longer a credible thing um, for the United States uh, to, to proclaim itself as, um, but it could have been if it had held itself accountable for the torture that it inflicts. This was more than the prosecution of the war on terror itself, the CIA's number one priority during the war on terror, avoiding that accountability for the torture it inflicted directly on at least 119 people, quite possibly more. Um, it destroyed records of what it had done, um, which is extremely difficult to see as anything else but the cover-up of a crime of the state. And it also did not maintain records of thousands more who it had through a process called extraordinary rendition, aided in taking to other countries some of the worst uh, torture regimes on the planet, Libya under Muammar Gaddafi, Syria under Bashar Assad, Egypt under Hosni Mubarak, Pakistan under um, uh, Pervez Musharraf um, for uh, torture. Um, these included the guilty and the innocent alike. Um, the torture itself, another thing that uh, the United States does not particularly want to come to terms with, um, was sexual torture. The CIA committed not only um, the... Uh, crimes of the state that we're familiar with, the barbaric acts that we're familiar with, like waterboarding, uh, like putting people into stress positions, like bombarding them with sound and light, in, and also uh, contortions of the body that prevented them from long periods of sleep, but it committed sexual assault. It, uh, we learned from the 2014 Senate Intelligence Committee's um, report into the CIA's torture program uh, that it very frequently violated the anuses 
of the helpless men in its custody in order um, to uh, issue pureed food. Uh, in, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Um, in order to insert pureed food um, from survivors of this practice, we've also heard about the uh, often um, deliberate cruelty that the infliction of this happened. The CIA insisted after it became public that this was done to save detainees' lives during hunger strikes. But the human body does not absorb nutrition through the anus. Um, and it was only this year when a military judge at Guantanamo, um, who was adjudicating um, an aspect of a case involving um, someone who had gone through this, um, a man named Abdul Rahim al-Nashiri, um, who's facing a military commission at Guantanamo right now, said simply that this was not a way the human body could receive nutrition and very wryly, very delicately, but nevertheless effectively pointed out that the CIA story is a cover-up, that it maintained a kind of surface plausibility if you don't have medical knowledge or aren't willing to just like spend a couple minutes on WebMD or something like that. Um, and it could do that because it faced no greater criminal or even really administrative um, penalty. 30 people remain at Guantanamo today. If you listen to QAnon and many on the far right, they talk about Guantanamo, and this goes back to my original point about how surveillance um, against Muslims, Islamophobia, doesn't stay in the kind of you know, neat pen that those who are constructing this circumstance have it in, not that that would justify Islamophobia or would justify structurally Islamophobic institutions. But now you know, the far right talks about this as a place to send uh, its political enemies, um, Guantanamo Bay, um, a place not viewed as um, a violation of American, um, you know, self-conceptions as uh, a um, as an avatar of the rule of law, but celebrated for the fact that it is what the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben called the state of exception, that it's a manifestation of a lawless place, institutionalized, um, maintained uh, through political fear, dressed up and national security prerogative, dressed up in minimally plausible legalistic language, often defended by a bevy of lawyers, however implausibly. Um, and there's no accountability for any of it. If the United States wishes to be known by what it's, you know, standard um, State Department rhetoric and self-conception um, would have, which is as a defender of, of human rights, um, a champion of human dignity, things that the United States um, did in earlier, you know, periods of its history, maybe, you know, with the uncomfortable reality that it was always a settler colonial project, slave state, um, a Jim Crow apartheid state and, um, you know, and, you know, regional and then international um, empire, um, the thing that it needs to do is to dis dismantle this architecture and make accountable um, the people who instituted this, both the people who committed the torture themselves and the people who ordered that torture created. Instead, um, one of uh, the most um, significant figures 
um, in the torture program, someone who uh, supervised a black site herself um, in 2002, Gina Haspel, became the director of the CIA under, under Donald Trump. Um, so the legacy of, of torture um, by the United States um, is something that after 9-11, um, we often, you know, talk about as like American credibility is this renewable resource. Like the American, you know, uh, you know, the American image has suffered um, a great, uh, a, you know, a great blow, um, at, you know, when images from Abu Ghraib came out or, you know, uh, reports of torture at Guantanamo came out. And very often American commentators talk about this as like a renewable resource. Like we'll just, you know, fill the um, fill the account back up with um, lots of uh, behavior that runs counter um, to that. And that's just not how I think the world works. It's, you know, when harm is done, the measurement of uh, sincerity and credibility is representative reparation is acknowledgement, reparation, and change. And that's not really something throughout the ongoing war on terror that the United States has really distinguished itself, at, you know, for, for doing. You know, Spencer, uh, a lot of folks, um, you know, when, when you talk about Islamophobia or the global war on terror, uh, you know, they often talk about right-wing conservatives. And I want to talk a little bit about liberal complicity in the global war on terror. And we both know that, you know, although right-wing conservatives have been the main purveyors of Islamophobia and the global war on terror in the last two decades, we do often forget about liberal complicity in the growth of Islamophobia since 9-11. As you noted in your book, you know, before 9-11, nobody referred to American territory, American territory as, quote-unquote, the homeland, but a milquetoast Democratic senator named Joseph Lieberman helped create the Department of Homeland Security in October 2001. Uh, people also, also often forget that Hillary Clinton was to the political right of Barack Obama, and even though she lambasted Donald Trump's Islamophobia on one side, practiced her own condescending version of limousine liberal variant of Islamophobia when she caused American Muslims to wince when she referred to us as, quote unquote, the front lines in the global war on terror and implored us to, quote, be part of our homeland security during Democratic National Convention speeches. And so I want you to please summarize a little bit about liberal complicity within the global war on terror and how you feel that has helped impact or exacerbate the growth of Islamophobia today. Sure. Um, this is a major um, aspect of my book. Um, I wanted to look at um, the impact of the war on terror, um, both as you know the right wing pursued it and also as liberals pursue it. Um, I say liberals and not the left, uh, because liberalism is an ideology of capitalism and uh, socialism is not. Um, and socialists are disempowered in the United States politically. Liberals are not. Um, so we're, we're, you know, the Democratic Party um, is committed to liberalism. Um, so we are sort of looking at, I mean, liberalism in a very broad project, not liberalism is synonymous Fair with enough. progressivism. But, you know, that's a digression. The reason why I'm, I'm bringing that up is because Islamophobia is normalized through respectability. Mm. Braying people on the far right um, who talk about uh, the war on terror in civilizational terms um, cannot designate Islamophobia with respectability. People in newsrooms, people in congressional offices, um, people in uh, law firms, um, and people in security agencies 
confer that respectability to this enterprise. Liberals, you can definitely see this in the journalism of the time, the, the respectable journalism, you know, whether it's the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, um, the, uh, the New Yorker, you know, um, the, you know, the, the, the Tony and upscale and, um, you know, catering to liberal media lustily engaged in Islamophobia. It was not often vulgar Islamophobia, but it was nevertheless, um, you know, uh, willing to describe uh, and attribute, it was nevertheless willing to attribute uh, blame for 9-11 to cultures um, in uh, Arab and Muslim communities and Desi communities of pathology and talk about those um, as, as, you know, problems for those societies um, to tackle if they wanted, you know, a continual um, relationship um, with America. Um, you know, uh, someone like Joe Biden is a really, you know, uh, exemplary story here. Uh, Biden um, is a, you know, leading champion of the Patriot Act. He talks about uh, the Patriot Act not incorrectly as drawing on a legacy of an earlier um, law enforcement um, and uh, material support um, expansion bill um, that passes um, in 1996 called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Um, he calls Patriot measured and prudent. He supports the Department of Homeland Security. He votes for the Iraq War. Um, on, you know, when Iraq goes badly, um, he not only attempts to kind of blame this on poor management uh, by George W. Bush, but then um, proposes something that sounds a whole lot to Iraqi ears, like the partition of Iraq um, into, into three different pieces. Um, so all of a sudden now politicians in Washington, you know, can casually talk about the breakup of a country that um, has a national identity. Um, in 2005, after losing uh, the 2004 presidential election to George W. Bush, the Democrats start like coming out in greater force to, you know, sort of make the politics of the war on terror, which is to say an Islamophobic politics, work for them. Um, a foreign, uh, I believe, London-based company um, that manages uh, lots of ports worldwide um, starts to sell to uh, a UAE-based company called Dubai Ports World. The Democratic Party demands that, you know, Bush block this from happening inside the United States. Um, they treat the UAE, uh, which is this, you know, autocratic and oligarchic playpen as essentially, you know, a, a terror state um, simply because it's a Muslim state. They start talking about um, the danger posed to U.S. national security coming in at ports, um, which, you know, means at this point in the debate, like, the prospect of radiological weapons. Um, you know, there had been a movie based on, I believe, a Tom Clancy novel called The Sum of All Fears about like Baltimore Harbor detonating. Um, and now they're talking about this as a danger because the foreign contractor for managing these ports um, is in Dubai. Just, just as a quick aside, in 2005, during the, during the Dubai Ports World Controversy on MSNBC Scarborough Country, I debated Joe Scarborough former CIA director Jim Woolsey and Republican Congressman Peter King all at the same time on this exact topic. Go on.
that 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 is that's hence all hence all the white hairs on my face that doesn't sound that doesn't sound like a, a fun you know use of of half an hour or whatever it was um you know uh when the uh ground zero mosque controversy happens i hate using that name but it's the name that has unfortunately yeah. kind of attached itself um exactly. to this you know to to run through that really quickly um there's an effort um near a destroy a building destroyed on 9-11 near ground zero to set up basically a muslim equivalent of the 92nd street y like a civic park space that's like kind of sort of yeah called park 51 there is a mosque component to it it's not the major feature of the thing um newspapers which will eventually include um respectable newspapers like the times and, and the post and mm -hmm. so on um follow the lead of uh far-right islamophobic activists who treat this like mehmet the conqueror turning hagia sophia into a mosque that this is an act of civilizational conquest um and eventually someone um, a cab driver um, named Sharif Ahmed gets stabbed because of this. Um, it was a terrifying thing to watch happen. Um, the Democratic leader of the Senate, Harry Reid, told Park 51 to build elsewhere. This is also a moment when Donald Trump kind of steps into the fore and tries as a as a real estate, you know, you know, self-conceptualized mogul tries to to bully them out of it by buying the land, by buying the property it costs. Um, so, so they'll move. Um, these are ways in which um, the national unity that I believe a lot of liberals, I saw this in 2021 during the 20th anniversary celebrations, want to believe existed after 9-11. Um, where we all, you know, stood together and would place, you know, colored solo cups that read United We Stand in, you know, chain link fences above overpasses. Sure. Um, that national unity was at the expense of the American and global Muslim community. Um, it became a way to write them out of the American project, treat them, you know, from the perspective of, 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 of the right wing, um, as a predatory community internally and by liberals like you mentioned whether it would be um obama with what was called cve um or hillary clinton saying you know stand on the front lines as an at-risk community always on the verge of incubating terrorism i think now that we see the overwhelming violence that white supremacist networks not just commit on this upsurge of violence but have committed throughout American history with the support of the state as a, a certain um, inextricability from the state, um, we can really see the ways in which um, that is, I feel like hypocrisy is not the accurate way of understanding it. It's an alibi to deflect onto the Muslim community real social pathologies and political cowardices and economic incentives that exist within mainstream American society. You know, I want to talk a little bit about Barack Obama and, and what you call the sustainable global war on terror. And we both know that he's not an overt Islamophobe like Donald Trump, but one of the longstanding legacies of, of Obama's presidency was his drone strike campaigns, which use quote unquote 
disposition matrices to decide who to kill using drones. Obama launched 186 drone strikes compared to Trump's 238 strikes. And also, although he promised to close Guantanamo Bay, it remains open today. And as you mentioned, the Obama administration's continued use of the AUMF, the uh, Authorized Use of Military Force Justifications to Promote the Forever War. And as you mentioned, the 2008 FISA Amendments Act allowed continued surveillance of millions of innocent Americans, just like his Republican predecessors. And so in your opinion, what do you think that Barack Obama could have done differently to bring an end to this forever war known as the global war on terror? Sure. Before I answer that, just real quick, um, we have to make a correction sure. to that. Um, when you said Obama okay. launched 186 drone strikes compared to Trump's 238, you're actually taking that from a piece I wrote. Um, and uh, I forgive am. me, but a little bit of a misinterpretation happened okay. there. Those are the, the figures for drone strikes in the first two years of either of their presidencies, which was when the time in which I was I was writing that. Obama launched far more than that under his presidency, okay. as did Trump. Um, Thanks for the clarification. Yeah, Obama should have dismantled the global war on terror outright. Um, he should have made this a central political fight of his presidency. He knew it was, he knew that acquiescing to aspects of this, like for instance, escalating in Afghanistan would be wrong and futile, but he decided it was potentially disastrous to challenge um, these currents um, in American politics during his presidency, and I think had just um, really tragic and awful uh, consequences for that um, mistaken judgment. Um, to, you know, never in the history of the war on terror, because it was so deliberately amorphous and picking um, enemies uh, as they newly generated, often generated because of prior actions, the U.S. committed in the war on terror, there was never a stable point at which you could plausibly say, and this would inevitably be a political argument that you would have to make, but there was never a point at which you could say this event happened and now it's over. We've, you know, we are willing to consider this one or at least, you know, ended, except for the 2011 killing of Osama bin Laden. If ever there was a point at which yeah. an American president could have said, this 10-year you know, unfolding disaster and tragedy that has killed hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million people worldwide, made millions more into refugees, um, can come to an end, it's when the person actually responsible for 9-11 is killed. Instead, Obama says the opposite, that terrorism remains the premier challenge to American national security, that um, neither al-Qaeda nor uh, its broader affiliated networks uh, are defeated by this, and that the war has to continue. When the war continues, that means its, um, its institutions maintain themselves and find broader targets, its authorities, which impinge on central legal and constitutional freedoms um, are permitted to remain in place, and also accountability for prior um, crimes of the state cannot occur. For instance, Obama wishes, and this I call this in my book, as you mentioned, the sustainable war on terror, um, to prosecute a less um, violent 
um, uh, I, I should say, a, a less uh, horrifically violent and certainly less conspicuous, it's still very violent, um, war on terror um, through less conspicuous technologies um, compared to you know ground invasions um, like drone right. strikes. Mm -hmm. These are CIA drone strikes. It's the CIA conducting this. You cannot have people involved in the torture program face legal or political or bureaucratic accountability when you are relying on them for a central pillar of your national security posture to the point where um, the final um, person to preside over the CIA's um, black sites um, become a guy named Michael Andrea becomes the person who presides over Obama's drone strikes. Um, he will eventually go on uh, he will eventually matriculate to running operations against Iran for Donald Trump. Um, so the continuities of what Obama would call uh, looking forward and not looking backward um, are uh, really pivotal. Um, I believe a stain um, on his foreign policy legacy, um, a stain on his presidency, um, and something that he genuinely thought he would not, he somehow thought, even as he saw the politics of the war on terror, especially Islamophobia, be played against him um, through what was called birtherism, where supposedly uh, he, you know, went back in time or whatever and, you know, forged his birth certificate so he could run for president despite being a secret Kenyan Muslim. He is neither of those things. Um, uh, nevertheless, he embraces the mechanisms of the war on terror and the justifications of the war on terror to continue these things. And then suddenly Trump is elected. And it is like there is no sense of continuity um, amongst uh, the people who served in the Obama presidency, especially as they were about to hand the tools over the war on terror uh, to Donald Trump. And I think at that moment, there were people within the Obama administration who kind of saw the depths um, if not necessarily willing to think of it as a stake, but certainly the wages of perpetuating the war on terror that they thought would, you know, be something they could make, you know, respect the law, respect the rule of law. Instead, all they ever did, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden, is make the rule of law respect the war on terror. And you know, that's a perfect segue to my, my final question, Spencer. Uh, and, and that's uh, that uh, we often forget that Donald Trump before he became president, he was also the mastermind behind birtherism, which framed Barack Obama as some sort of crypto-Muslim Manchurian candidate. And I always like to tell people as a brown civil rights lawyer from Chicago myself, I've met Barack many times and he did not know our secret handshake, so I can assure you that he's not Muslim. And then I always feel like Jerry Seinfeld should pop out and say, not that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, this has sort of been part and parcel the same Republican game plan, which promoted the Ground Zero mosque controversy, which you mentioned. But even after that, subsequent anti-mosque protests, copycat protests that we saw in places like Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Temecula, California, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, the Peter King hearings in 2012, which was the first time ever that a minority community was essentially the subject of a congressional hearing, uh, you know, on in terms of our loyalties. So as my final question to you, you know, what would you like people to know about the, the global right and how conservatives have used the global war on terrorism as a pretext to spread Islamophobia, not only in the United States, but all around the world today? Well, first, I would I would quibble only with the use of the word abused the war on terror. 
they didn't abuse the war on terror. This was the war yeah. on terror. These the, They used yeah. the war on terror. They shaped the war on terror. They saw the potential that the war on terror um, presented to them. Um, I would say this. When we look at the, uh, the you know, transformation um, in fortunes in the early 21st century of the extreme right, we should observe that before it was done to anyone else, it was done to Muslims. You mentioned, we talked about birtherism for a second. Birtherism, I think, is sometimes, you know, poorly understood as, as, as you know, being, you know, precisely because it is so clearly anti-Black racism um, that yeah. sometimes that can obscure us from understanding what else it is at the same time. It's this three-headed monster of, uh, you know, traditional, familiar, you know, deeply American um, hostility against Black people in the context of the war on terror, which says that Muslims are a security threat. Um, mm -hmm. The other elements of birtherism are that, you know, Barack Obama is not just, it's saying to you, your enemy because he's Black, He's also your enemy because he is a foreigner and because he is a Muslim. So you basically have this three-legged stool of nativism um, that yep. the war on terror gives legitimacy to, gives urgency to, and gives justification to. Um, Islamophobia is a beta test um, for, for nativism, whether it's on you know, the border, um, ICE is created uh, during the war on terror with a counterterrorism um, component and, and 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 mandate to it when what it's doing um, is uh, erecting you know surveillance and detention and deportation networks within the United States um, for undocumented people. Um, some of you may be familiar um, with the term white genocide theory, uh, which is this concept. Um, it's 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 not really if it's not really a concept. We have to understand this. Um, in terms of the way fascist movements uh, manufacture for themselves uh, threats that they experience so that their violence uh, can be portrayed as a response rather than a provocation. But it basically says that like a cabal of elites, they're basically, you know, to greater and smaller registers, meaning Jews and the people that we supposedly puppet, um, are trying to replace white people in the United States, uh, transform the electorate is how, for instance, Tucker Carlson. Um, de, uh, the, great, the, great, the, the Great Replacement Theory. The Great Replacement Theory. Um, before they chanted, Jews will not replace us on the streets mm -hmm. of Charlottesville, Virginia, they would talk about creeping Sharia and civilizational jihad, by which the far right meant that... Um, you can immediately see, you know, the precursor effect, the similarity in rhetoric, the, the you know, intellectual debt, you know, that white genocide theory owes to this, that Muslims were seeking to replace the Constitution, um, the subtext being you, white America, your way of life, with Sharia law, the foreign um, religious mandates that you neither understand nor can benefit from. Um, right. You mentioned the Peter King hearings. This was put on display in Congress, whereby the, you know, not a marginal figure, but the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee held days of hearings predicated on the idea 
that American Muslims were a disloyal fifth column. And what, you know, once that premise is established, he would ask, is necessary as a response taken by law enforcement um, and intelligence against that internal threat. Um, meanwhile, you know, so, so uh, American Muslims are supposedly performing enormous constitutional damage by their sheer fact of living in the United States. Now, the irony here um, is, is almost, you know, too tragic um, to gloss over, um, but it's necessary. All of this is happening as mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream American politics and uh, the American security state is itself doing enormous constitutional damage through the war on terror, through its surveillance, its detention, its torture um, uh, uh, prerogatives. Um, so I guess I would just say that, you know, the global war on terror, particularly as we look at, you know, what the right um, is allowed to be um, under, you know, during the, the the prime years of the war on terror and how it then matriculates, particularly after the wars themselves in Iraq and Afghanistan become bloody disasters that showcase not the American power they were promised, but the American weakness that's put on display, becomes a mechanism to entrench itself in power and expand its remit. And it's never going to be satisfied with Islamophobia when there are other internal enemies, often ones that are, you know, more historic enemies of the far right, which is to say, you know, white supremacist, you know, um, movements in, in, in the United States um, that are going to be, um, you know, putting black people um, and migrants, as well as Muslims, as well as I would say, um, you know, Jews after uh, the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in 2018, um, under greater threat, um, under, uh, you know, potential to, to seize power and then use state power and the state power that they would be using um, that we saw Donald Trump use against protesters for Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2020 um, against ever greater swaths of American society that an empowered far right, often with liberal acquiescence, calls an internal enemy. Spencer Ackerman is a Pulitzer Prize and National Magazine award-winning reporter and author of the book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Spencer, thank you so much for joining us today on the Unpacking Islamophobia podcast. Thank you so much, Arsalan. For more information, please visit bridge.georgetown.edu. See you next time.